Hi, Yoris, and welcome everyone to this Ask Me Anything session with Trifox CEO, Yoris Kuypers. So I'm Vika, and I will be today's AMA host. I am part of the Go to Amsterdam team, and we have a lot of online events planned for you in the upcoming months. So you can, of course, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at adgoto.com to stay up to date. So about today's session, first, Yoel will shortly introduce the topic of Spring in a Cloud Native World. And then we'll move forward to answering all the burning questions. I will first read all the pre-submitted questions that are also included in the description box. And then Yoris will answer all the remaining questions from the chat. And now let's welcome again Trifor CTO Yoris Kuypers. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about your experience and topic you specialized in and elaborate a bit more about different Java versions? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, thanks for the intro. Uh, my name is Joris Kuypers. I work uh, as a CTO and hands-on architect at uh, Trifork Amsterdam, which is one of the uh, many offices that uh, Trifork has worldwide. Um, we do a lot of uh, custom software development that uses Java and Spring, uh, nowadays also Kotlin and Spring. And uh, I have a quite a strong background in, in doing Spring-based development because I used to work for the company behind the Spring framework. Uh, which started out as Interface 21, then became Spring Source, then became acquired by VMware, then spun off into Pivotal, and now is back at VMware, actually. So that's uh, quite a journey. I left after the uh, VMware acquisition to join uh, the current company. And um, as such, uh, I'm still involved with uh, setting up systems and developing systems uh, using uh, the Spring stack, as well as a lot of other open source technologies. We are very much focused on open source. And a couple of years ago, uh, as Riga said, we also became a, a training partner for uh, what was then still uh, Pivotal. So we also deliver the core Spring training uh, regularly. And uh, next week is another edition of that one. One of the uh, questions was on the, uh, the version of Java that people were using. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. I was, uh, I'm seeing a lot of different um, um, usages still of Java, uh, especially in the enterprise. Traditionally, people are lagging behind a bit, um, and sometimes a bit more than a bit, uh, especially companies that are on the, uh, let's say, old school uh, Java EE application servers, very often are stuck still on Java 8 or lower. When it comes to Spring, um, you're probably aware, uh, but I'll, I'll mention it anyways, that uh, even with the uh, latest Spring version, Java 8 is uh, still the minimum baseline. So that means that everything that is actively being developed on newest versions will actually still work on Java 8. Um, however, uh, Java 11 is currently the, uh, the long-term support version of, uh, of Java um, that most people use, I think. Uh, that's also what I see here in the poll as it's changing. Uh, Java 11 is also a version that we are very actively using uh, in a lot of our uh, projects. We're using a mix of uh, OpenJDK uh, as well as also the OpenJ9 uh, virtual machine from Eclipse. Uh, if you haven't heard of that, uh, I would definitely uh, consider checking it out. Um, it's an alternative uh, to the uh, OpenJDK virtual machine. And uh, it, it has a number of features, but one of the uh, more attractive ones is that the memory usage of the OpenJ9 tends to be uh, a lot lower than the, the default OpenJDK one. And that's the reason that we're actually using it. We're doing a lot of uh, projects where we have uh, a whole fleet of microservices running, and uh, you can simply fit more services onto a server if they don't uh, consume that much memory. Um, actually, uh, for the start of next year, 
um, uh, for my own personal projects, I'm uh, considering to do the upgrades to Java 15. As you may know, um, there is no uh, newer uh, LTS, long-term support version, uh, beyond Java 11 yet. So even though you may think that it's every three versions, Java 14 is not, in fact, a long-term support version. Um, however, the uh, latest versions of uh, frameworks like Spring uh, have been fully updated to, uh, to support Java 15. Uh, Java 15 itself has a, has a lot of interesting features. Uh, some of them were uh, just further developed features that were introduced in Java 14, things like uh, records, for example. But even though it's not an LTS version, uh, there are already uh, point releases, uh, both of OpenJDK as well as the OpenJNI that I just mentioned, um, which I think means that it's stable enough. And of course, if that means that it's stable enough for you as well, depends on the situation. Um, but uh, we at Trifork, we, uh, uh, even though we don't want to have bleeding edge, uh, we sure do try to stay on, uh, on current versions and, on, uh, and make use of new uh, features and technologies. Uh, so that's something that we, uh, that we are actually trying, right? Um, good thing, like I said about Spring, is that even if you're on 8, you're still OK. Uh, but if you want to go all the way up to 15, uh, you're actively supported there as well. So let's, uh, let's leave it at that for the Java version, and let's move on to, uh, to another question. Now let's move to the pre-submitted questions. So I will start with the first one. One of my providers, I am calling his service via HTTP, requires me to change password. Password is sent with each request every month by calling a dedicated change password endpoint. Currently passwords, a single one per env, are stored in properties file. So the question is, if I execute his change password, how can I easily update password in properties file and even push it to go? Yeah, so to, to just summarize, basically, what um, the, the problem that uh, that the, the people, uh, the, the person asking the question has is, uh, we have something that is a, considered to be a configuration property. In this case, a password, but it changes over time. It changes every month. In this case, as a result of an HTTP request. Uh, but uh, well, we are used to storing these things in properties files. So, so what do we do? Do we update the properties file? Um, I would go back uh, a step and say, well, that's the wrong question. Uh, the question shouldn't be, uh, how do I uh, update my properties file that I use to initialize my configuration? Um, the, uh, the real question should be, where do I put this configuration? Um, and my answer wouldn't be, try to update your local properties file, because uh, typically properties that you package up with a Spring application or that you put next to an application, they are considered to be quite static and certainly not something that you would want to update on a regular basis automatically. Uh, good news is that for Spring applications, the, uh, the idea of configuration is something that is a built-in abstraction. So Spring has something that it calls property sources, and the property source could be a properties file, as uh, the person asking the question is already using. Uh, but properties could also be an environment variable. They can be a system property, or they can be actually something like a remote system where you get your configuration from. Um, and that's actually what I would do. Um, before the uh, latest uh, release of uh, Spring and Spring Boot, this meant that you would need to use something called Spring Cloud. Uh, which has support for external property sources. So you could store it in a database or you could store it in some other service. And then during startup, you could just retrieve the password from there. Um, actually, in the latest release, um, they made a change so that now with the latest Spring Boot 2.4, uh, 
uh, Spring Boot itself actually has support for externalized property sources. So um, uh, that's one of the things I'm, uh, I'm I'm going to change in my own applications. We are currently using the uh, AWS Parameter Store for storing uh, configuration, including secrets and passwords. Um, and that becomes active as a property source in the application. Uh, this is something that I would probably write as a uh, as a custom implementation of exactly that mechanism. And then you can just use any uh, persistence mechanism for storing the passwords. Um, it could be a database, which would be kind of an obvious uh, solution. Uh, or if maybe retrieving the password is something that you could do on every startup, you could just keep it in memory. And, and make that into something that you do uh, during the bootstrap of your application. The nice thing about solutions like this is that after getting this in place, and for the rest of the application, it, it, the code doesn't need to know or need to care uh, if this password came out of a properties file or if it came out of uh, uh, some variable or if it came out of an external system. It's all just going to be another property that's available for uh, resolving in your application, uh, which means that for local testing, for example, you could also still put it in a properties file that you read from there. Uh, and you don't need access to the same system that you need in a production setting. So that's my what my solution would be. I would not try to update a local properties file. I would just try to uh, store the password somewhere else, but still treat it as another property source. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much. So now let's move to another question. Um, the question from Yogesh. I really hope I pronounced the name correctly. If not, I'm so sorry. So the question would be, reactive applications seems to be in thing. Given this is such a paradigm shift, what should be the considerations when deciding to implement or not to implement an application using Reactive Framework? For simplicity's sake, assume a greenfield application with no constraints using a Reactive Complaint database. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the question is basically, when would you want to use the new reactive support? Uh, so in spring, that means stuff like WebFlux, Project Reactor, uh, R2DBC. Um, and it's, it's a great question because it's a question that we ask ourselves a lot when we start new projects as well. Um, the reactive support in spring has been out now for about three years. Uh, but three years ago, when we started projects, we still considered it to be uh, too new of a thing to already immediately incorporate into bigger projects. Um, because one of the things that, uh, that's uh, definitely important when you consider to go reactive is uh, the whole stack, start to end, top to bottom, needs to be able to support a reactive model. So for example, the uh, the database uh, used to be an issue there. Uh, there were very few reactive uh, database drivers, especially in the relational database world, uh, three years ago. So for us, that was actually a consideration to for many applications to stay on the traditional uh, thread per request uh, serverless-based uh, approach. This has changed, however. So nowadays there is R2D R2DBC support for relational databases. Um, also the uh, the frameworks building on top of Spring, things like Spring Security, uh, now have excellent support for doing reactive. So. Um, what I see is that a lot of the technical limitations that used to be a reason not to choose reactive um, have gone away. So then the next question becomes, okay, so if, if, if there is no objection to doing reactive, then what are the, the, the pros, right? Why would you want to choose reactive over what's probably a more familiar program model? And uh, what we're seeing there is that um, the, the main driver there is just uh, more efficient use of resources when you have a lot of parallel income requests that you need to handle. 
that's really the main use case for doing reactive because reactive is just a lot more effective in, in dealing with these things. Having uh, basically a threat per CPU core and an event loop model is uh, a lot more effective at dealing with lots of uh, parallel connections that you need to have open uh, web connections typically uh, compared to the traditional server based model. So we have a, a couple of applications nowadays that are built on uh, the reactive stack. And we're seeing really nice results there when it comes to resource usage. Um, but um, it, it's not necessarily our, uh, our default go-to model. And if I would build, let's say, a simple uh, application that is used internally by a handful of people within a company to, uh, to manage some database, and I just need some quick views on that, uh, I would probably not consider to do it with a reactive stack um, because I know that not just for me, but also for a lot of the people that I need to work with and that you need to understand the architectures that I'm setting up, it will just be simpler to use a more traditional model. Every open source library will probably integrate with it. Everything that is based on things like thread locals, for example, will work out of the box. So if you want to go for a reactive, uh, I would say that the main driver should be that you know you're going to be having a lot of concurrent requests that you need to handle efficiently. Um, so instead of needing to horizontally scale a whole bunch of different instances, you just want to have a small number of instances to handle the same load, which will just be cheap. Um, and then you need to check for the entire stack, okay, is everything that I want to use, is that uh, already supporting this uh, this program model? And the good news is that nowadays that's more and more the case, certainly within the Spring ecosystem itself. Uh, I think uh, they're fairly complete nowadays when it comes to uh, having reactive support in all of the actively maintained frameworks, uh, but I see it in, in other areas as well. Um, of course, you do also need to realize that uh, you won't be able to deploy to, let's say, the traditional uh, Java EE application servers uh, that are still running WebSphere on uh, IBM Java 8 or something like that. So that's also a consideration, right? What is what is your actual runtime environment? But if you're uh, doing things that we're doing, uh, basically just uh, putting everything in a container and then running that on uh, Kubernetes or some other managed platform, then uh, that should be absolutely fine. So those are the main um, the main considerations for us when we uh, decide between uh, doing a reactive or a traditional uh, stack, and we we currently have a mix of both. I also don't really see reactive becoming like the uh, dominant model anytime soon, to be honest, because I think the program model is quite complex. There's still some issues around debugging. There's still some issues around. Uh, stack traces, that sort of thing. Uh, those issues are being dealt with, and there are tools that will help you with this. Uh, there's uh, block hounds to see if there's any blocking code in your code, that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it's definitely not as mature yet as the whole tool chain for uh, the traditional model. So keep that in mind. Okay, I see some follow up. It's not necessarily a question, but Jakub said, Regarding configuration question, even when you store configuration setting, let's say password in DB, how would you propagate changes of this password to all instances? In I would assume if you have a database that the database is actually shared across different instances of your application. Uh, so you would put it in a shared store, right? Uh, I'm going to assume that you don't have a dedicated database instance per instance of your service uh, for this model. Um, and database, right, could be a relational database. It could also be something like a Redis or or anything else that allows you to, to, to hang on to the data and make sure that it's stored centrally. Okay. And then we actually have another question from Jakub. So 
Yeah, so the, the question is about, okay, but do I need to then actively get the configuration from the database for every request? And the answer is no. Um, the whole idea behind the abstraction I was mentioning that you get a property source is basically it's only created once at startup. And if you need to, uh, there is a support uh, to refresh uh, uh, certain uh, configuration values if you know that they change, but then you would only do it on the month. So instead of having a polling model where you have to check all the time if something changed, you would uh, build in a mechanism so your application actually gets a trigger to know that, hey, my configuration changed. I need to update everything that uses that configuration. So for things like logging configuration, that's actually built in into Spring. For other things, you can use an at refresh scope annotation on certain beans that you want to actively refresh if your configuration changes. Uh, could also be that it's actually an easier option in your case to simply uh, restart uh, some services when you know that it's just going to be once a month uh, at fixed times that these things change. It, it, that depends on the use case and, and how quickly you need the, uh, the change to propagate uh, amongst your instances. Well, I hope that answers your question, Jakub. And if anyone else has some follow-up questions, just shoot them in the chat. And now we have one more pre-submitted question that I'll read. So, cloud-native applications ideally should have quick startup time and low memory footprint. This is especially important in the dynamic world of Kubernetes and fast, where pods functions are spun up multiple times a day. Though we do see many Spring applications being deployed in cloud, this feels like squaring the circle, especially given the image size, more than 400 megabytes, and non-trivial non startup time. Due to heavy use of annotation processing and reflection, reflection during startup of a moderately sized Spring application. So the question is, would Spring, or for that matter, Java, still be your first choice to develop a cloud-native application from scratch? Yeah, so, so that's the real question. And um, uh, well, uh, the short answer is it depends, because I don't think every cloud-native application is the same and has the same requirements. Um, for example, even if you are running on uh, Kubernetes, uh, which we are as well, uh, and, and also other Docker orchestrators, um, that doesn't mean that uh, new instances of your Java services will be uh, spun up like every minute. Right? That's not how it works. If you have a service that's happily running uh, on a pod and um, um, there is no need for uh, scaling up or scaling down, then by default, Kubernetes will just keep the thing running. So in, in those cases, startup time is not actually all that critical. Uh, you don't really gain much, I think, by shaving off a couple of seconds of the startup time of the service. Uh, you do need to take into account that indeed it might take a little bit longer for a full-blown Java Spring Boot application to start up uh, than it might for other types of applications. So things like uh, how quickly should the application uh, respond to health checks and that sort of thing is something to take into consideration there. I don't really consider it a problem otherwise. Um, memory usage though is a different concern. And um, this is one of the reasons I mentioned that we are using uh, things like the J9, the virtual machine, because it, it shaves e easily like uh, something like 100 megabytes of uh, at runtime of, of every instance that we have running. So if you add that up, it adds up rather quickly. Um, the main problem that I see with Java for cloud native is if you want to use it for serverless development, because in those cases, you don't have services that just start up and are long lived even though you might get uh, a bit of scaling up and down every now and then, uh, you actually get um, get instances that do need to be uh, started and restarted all the time. Um, I would say that the traditional model of using Java, especially with, as the, the question says, uh, relatively heavy technology 
that Spring uses, like lots of reflection and lots of class loading at startup time, which has a, has a real overhead, um, is, is certainly not the best way to do it. Um, there's two options there. Uh, obviously, you can use something else in Java. So a lot of people are doing things like serverless with uh, uh, JavaScript and Node, for example. Um, however, I think what I think is a, a super interesting development is uh, what is happening in the GraalVM space. Um, so GraalVM is a technology that's being developed by Oracle, and it's actually a bunch of things. But in this context, what is relevant for GraalVM is that it can take a Java application and it can compile it into native code. And that solves both issues that were mentioned in the question. It's, first of all, it solves the startup time because it, it's going to be milliseconds rather than seconds, uh, so super fast. But also the runtime overhead in terms especially of memory usage is reduced a lot. Right? Your application is not actually going to be faster at runtime, but it will consume way less memory. Um, right now, uh, 2020, um, you can already sort of do this with Spring Boot. Uh, but support is limited. So this is an uh, this is something that is actively being worked on. Uh, the Spring team is also in close contact with Oracle to make sure that um, new applications will actually properly compile and run using GraalVM. Um, but there are other options there as well. I think the the two uh, most well known are um, Micronaut. Uh, Micronaut is interesting because the programming model is actually very similar to that of Spring. That's not by accident. It's built by the people who uh, used to work on the grills. But uh, Graham Rocher, the lead for that, has uh, recently uh, this year has been hired actually by Oracle directly to work on uh, on Micronaut. Uh, so that means it's actually backed by Oracle. Um, and uh, even though not many people may like Oracle as a company to do business with, I think it's quite reassuring that the same company that is actually funding Java is also now funding the development of that framework. It means that it, they're in it for the long run. This is not just going to go away. Uh, and then there's Red Hat with, uh, with their framework, Quarkus. Um, which also has been built uh, from the ground up to uh, to support the compilation to GraalVM. So those are certainly things you could already start using right now today. And I think in next year uh, that we will see some um, some important big steps uh, being made in the Spring ecosystem as well, so that Spring can actually follow suit and will also be more suitable than it is right now, even uh, to uh, to be compiled down into native code using GraalVM. So that's for serverless, that's interesting. But even if you're not doing serverless, the reduced memory overhead, I think is still worth uh, worth doing that. So uh, so the question is, I think Java is catching up, or the answer really. Um, you can use Java for a lot of cloud native development already. We're doing it, but a, a lot of people in the world are actually doing it. But there are some obvious downsides compared to, uh, to alternatives. But I think uh, those are temporary. And I think that uh, 2021 uh, uh, will actually be the year where we will see uh, Java becoming like a first-class citizen again for, for this sort of cloud-native development. Well, thank you so much, Yori. So now we will fully move to the questions from the chat. We will have to wait for a second, but yeah, maybe in the meantime, you could tell us some, I don't know, best tips or something more about your Java practices. Yeah, or I can uh, tell a little bit about uh, what I'm currently working on myself. So um, for a while already, we are working on a, on a big integration platform that we are uh, developing for the uh, Dutch loaders. So that means that we are building lots of uh, web services uh, using REST APIs. And we are uh, exposing a lot of different backend systems, most of which are also exposing REST APIs. Uh, we are running this on AWS. 
Uh, so we're using um, uh, their Docker orchestration platform. Currently ECS, we are migrating to EKS. Uh, we are using some other services that they provide. So a lot of what we do is based on Spring Boot, Spring MVC, REST template still, uh, not the web clients, because when we started the project, it was just a little bit too early for um, uh, already moving into the uh, reactive days. Um, but we are fully up to date. So uh, recently I updated to the latest uh, Spring Boot 2.4. So if you haven't seen that yet, uh, that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And actually, uh, today they announced already a bunch of uh, uh, minor updates to the latest Spring Core frameworks. And uh, Spring Boot is expected to follow along somewhere next week, I think, or maybe the week after. So this year we will see a 241 release of that one. Um, one of the things to consider there is, like us, if you are uh, combining Spring Boot with Spring Cloud, uh, Spring Cloud is currently not yet compatible with the latest Spring Boot version. Um, we are using parts of Spring Cloud, but not that many. Um, so we, we hit a single incompatibility. And uh, for now, I've actually worked around that one uh, myself because um, I could just shadow uh, a class from Spring Cloud and remove a method there and, and, and everything works. Uh, but it's not necessarily something I would recommend everyone to do because you need to be very much aware of the internals of the framework in order to do that. Uh, new version of Spring Cloud is also planned to, uh, to come out and uh, actually the milestones are already there. One thing to consider there, if you are on Spring Cloud, is that um, all of the stuff that is based on the old Netflix uh, stack, uh, supporting uh, Hystrix, supporting Zoo, supporting Ribbon, is actually going to be taken out of the uh, standard uh, release, starting with the next major uh, release train from Spring Cloud, because it has been deprecated. Uh, it has been deprecated for a while. They have announced this quite a while already, and uh, alternatives have now been made available. Um, so that's also something that I'm planning for next year. Right now, I'm just working with uh, latest Spring Boot and a workaround for the old Spring Cloud. Um, but something that we will address uh, in the first quarter of next year is that I'm actually going to rewrite parts of my application to replace the uh, the outdated uh, uh, Netflix stack with some of the new alternatives that have been developed over the well, last two years or so uh, within the Spring Cloud umbrella. So for things like circuit breaking, instead of Hystrix, um, there's now an abstraction called Spring Cloud Circuit Breaker, which supports things like Resilience for J and a couple of other solutions. Um, for Ribbon, we can actually just take it out because we don't really need it anymore. But basically what it does is client-side load balancing. There's a new client-side load balancer abstraction as well. And what Zool is doing, something that we are also using, is uh, it's a proxy. And there are many solutions for uh, for providing proxies, including Spring Cloud Gateway, if you need a standalone proxy. Um, but yeah, that's that's some development in that space that's happening that you need to be aware of uh, if you want to uh, upgrade to the uh, to the latest versions. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I think that should be helpful. So if there's any follow up questions or if you have, I don't know. Any questions in different topics, something about Spring-based services, Java or microservices, feel free to ask us. Yep, I'll, uh, I'm happy to just uh, keep talking, so let's do that. So uh, <laughs> there were a couple of questions about um, uh, Reactive before. So as I mentioned, uh, we have been using Reactive in some of our projects. Uh, first one, we just used uh, Java with um, the Spring Reactive support. So that's using Webflux and uh, some of the other parts based on the Reactive Core, but still with Java. Um, right now, we are actually working on a new project where we are combining this with uh, Kotlin. 
and um, I'm not working on that myself. Uh, one of my colleagues who is an architect is, uh, is driving that project. But what I think that's very interesting there is that the um, the integration that they have there is that they can use Kotlin co-genes. So if you haven't worked with Kotlin yet, Kotlin is uh, another JVM-based language from uh, JetBrains, the uh, creators of IntelliJ. It's been in development for quite some time already. It targets both uh standard uh, uh let's say backend systems as well as uh, as android so you can use it for uh, for native client-side development as well um but what's interesting about kotlin is uh they it's not just a little bit of syntactic sugar uh over java they actually have some uh, quite unique uh, functionality and part of that is coroutines and coroutines is uh is a way that allows you to write code that is inherently reactive uh, but you can write it in a much more procedural fashion. So if you have ever looked at the reactive support in Spring proper now, uh, then you're probably aware that they are using uh, another project called Project Reactor, which is uh, also maintained by VMware. And um, that uses monos and flux everywhere, basically, to represent data that will become available after executing a reactive pipeline, where a mono is a single result and a stream uh, of result is called a flux. Um, now, um, you can work with this, and it works quite well, uh, but it's something that is very invasive. It, 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 it ends up everywhere in your uh, APIs and in your, in your application. It's, it's not a concern that is actually hidden from you. It's very much in your face. Uh, some people like that because it uh, allows you to uh, easily compose functions out of, uh, out of fluxes, for example. Uh, but it can also be uh, quite tricky to wrap your head around, especially when you also need to think about, okay, so where do I have thread boundaries? And uh, if I need some buffering, where, where actually does that sit? It's also super hard to, uh, to debug and to, uh, to troubleshoot if you make a mistake in there. With Kotlin, they support something called a coroutine, where basically um, the language tries to help you with uh, doing uh, things in a reactive fashion. Um, so in, in at runtime, you will still be working with things that are essentially uh, completable futures or streams, things that still need to be uh, processing something in order to come up with a result. Uh, but in the programming model, it looks much more like uh, the traditional uh, imperative model where you simply have a function that returns something. Uh, the keyword that they have for this in Kotlin is uh, suspend. So you're gonna have a suspend fun which is a suspending function. It's not something that tells you that you need to suspend having fun. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is one of the uh, super interesting developments uh, for now at least in getting the best of both worlds in the sense that you do get all of the benefits of reactive that we talked about before, uh, but not necessarily all of the downsides that I think are there in terms of the complexity that you uh, end up with in the program model. For next year, hopefully, uh, we will see um, something coming out, something that you can actually start to uh, use in, in, in enterprise Java applications already, out of Project Loom that is currently uh, being developed at Oracle. And Project Loom is yet another way to deal with uh, concurrency models where um, basically they are implementing a lightweight uh, threading model. So instead of having uh, operating system managed threads, as your Java threads, which is the traditional way of working, you're gonna end up with a program model that's super similar. Um, so you can still pretend that your code is running in isolation on a single thread, uh, but those threads will be much more lightweight, uh, comparable to what you see with uh, frameworks that support an actor pattern, for example. Um, and it will be very interesting, I think, to see if uh, how frameworks can adapt to that and how easy it will be to write enterprise application with that.
um, because this might actually be the thing that becomes more mainstream, I think, than just doing the current reactive way of developing applications. Yeah, we received a question through the forum now. So the yeah. question is, haven't used current Spring versions much in the past two years, but I do have a question. What is the Spring's answer to new frameworks like Micronaut and Quarkus that make Java services more case friendly? Yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about this already, but uh, I can uh, I can expand a little bit. So I think both Micronaut and Quarkus have been um, uh, super interesting to uh, to follow, and also um, have been a real driver to to get some innovation in Spring. Uh, because basically they uh, they were forced to uh, to uh, to catch up with these frameworks that were built uh, to be more let's say cloud native ready from from the ground up. Um, there's a couple of things there. Um, if you look at frameworks like Micronaut, then one of the things that they do is they try to reduce the use of reflection, um, and that helps with starting up very quickly. And it also helps, by the way, with reducing memory. Uh, because um, frameworks like Spring need to uh, cache uh, a lot of uh, metadata about classes in order to work efficiently with reflection. And that adds up into memory count. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff actually that's happening in Spring that has been driven by uh, the competition of these frameworks. So already uh, more than a year ago, um, they did a lot of investigation in uh, performance and, and overhead to measure where can we uh, can we improve on this? And a lot of those improvements have already found their way into the current versions of Spring Boots and uh, and the core Spring framework. Like I said, there uh, the other an, another interesting aspect about Micronaut and Quarkus is that they also try to make it um, easy to compile your applications with GraalVM to native code. So that's something that is also actively being worked on for Spring. It's harder for Spring because well they they are a framework that has already been out there for 15 years, heavily relying on things that don't necessarily well with GraalVM, um, but it's uh, it's definitely getting there. So they need to catch up, but I, I do see that happening. Um, but if it specifically also comes to being Kubernetes friendly, um, there is already a ton of support in there. So if you look at current Spring Boot versions, uh, out of the box, you don't even have to configure anything for that. If the application uh, finds out uh, at runtime that it's uh, running inside of a Kubernetes, a Kubernetes pod, it will automatically offer uh, liveness and uh, readiness uh, endpoints, actuator endpoints, so that Kubernetes can see if your application is running. Um, there is currently support to make sure that if your application shuts down, that it does a graceful shutdown, so it first stops accepting incoming uh, requests, but it will continue to process the in-flight requests. So this is perfect for um, uh, schedulers like Kubernetes or ECS or other orchestrators where um, stuff gets being brought down and being back up uh, all the time. Um, there is a lot of support nowadays for working with Kubernetes in terms of configuration. Um, so yeah, that's definitely there. Um, then there is another question about the Micronaut community. Does it compete? Um, yeah, a bit, uh, for sure. And I think it's very healthy competition. Uh, like I said, the uh, the Micronaut framework was uh, developed by uh, the people behind the Grails framework, uh, including um, um, the, the lead developer there, Graham Rozier. And um, their idea about uh, APIs and how to make a developer-friendly framework are actually super similar to the philosophy that you see in Spring. Uh, so there is no real competition there. I think they want the same things. And if, also, if you, as a Spring developer, if you have a look at Micronaut, you feel right at home, right? They use annotations that are similar. The program model is similar. Um, but under the hood, it's very different. 
because like I said, it, it tries to just uh, refrain from using reflection. It does everything at compile time and therefore um, it can start up quicker and it uses less memory and it's more GraalVM friendly. Um, so right now there is some competition, but I think it's very healthy competition. I'm very glad that this is there. It wouldn't be a good thing if uh, the Spring Framework would just be uh, the dominant player and then there would be zero competition in this market because then there is no uh, no drive there to to do like drastic innovations that you can see with things like GraalVM and, and Micronaut and Quarkus, right? There's always continuously small improvements, but I think this is much more than that. This is really like a new paradigm almost. almost. And uh, yeah, I think it's good that it's there and um, there is room enough, I think, for, uh, for all three of these frameworks to exist. I think personally, Quarkus is much more interesting for people with a traditional Java E background, right? They use JaxRS and all of those APIs, where I think Micronaut is much more uh, interesting for people already used to the to the Spring ecosystem because it's it's much closer in in its philosophy and its approach to doing things uh, to Spring than it is to uh, the traditional Java E, and uh, I think you will see a lot of back and forth between the two, actually. So uh, yeah, there's some competition there, but not in a bad way. Well, hopefully that answered your question, Hamza. Maybe Yoris, you could share some final tips or some final information with us before we move forward. Yeah, so uh, one thing I think that's interesting for people is also uh, if you're if you're using Spring, right, regardless of whether you're new or uh, whether you're already uh, doing it for a long time, um, uh, what, are, uh, what are the ways that you can actually uh, keep track of what's happening? So uh, some resources that I would recommend are um, uh, things like the uh, Spring.io website has their own blog. So if it comes to things like release announcements, that's definitely something to keep an eye out for. Um, so that you can see what's happening. Um, the quality, I think, of release documentation that is shipped with uh, most of the uh, Spring frameworks out there, like Boots, Cloud, etc., is uh, is very high. So that's something to uh, to keep an eye out for. Um, personally, uh, I'm a big fan of Twitter. So uh, simply by following uh, some people in the ecosystem, uh, uh, you um, you can easily keep up to date with uh, with uh, the new developments that are happening. I'm not the type of uh, person myself who uh, tends to actually watch GitHub repositories. I, I don't have time for that. Uh, I, I'd like to get like say the management summary after people are done uh, putting in new features because uh, well I have a busy job myself. Um, but that's some things uh, to consider. Um, obviously, there's trainings, right? Uh, doing a little bit of promotion here for ourselves, uh, but that's mostly, I would say, good if you are still learning the framework, right? If you are a beginner or if you're on a project and you're just copy pasting stuff that other people have set up, but you don't really know why it works that way or why you're doing the things you're doing, that's really when training is applicable. After that, um, uh, there's probably a better way of doing it. Um, but uh, of course, um, here at Trifork, uh, since we are Spring experts, um, we are also a, a company you could also always ask for help. Um, there's probably going to be some contact details uh, after uh, after this meetup, uh, so feel free to reach out uh, if you have any problems that you think that uh, that we could help out with. Uh, and otherwise, ping me on Twitter afterwards. For example, my uh, my Twitter handle is uh, jkuipers, so that's the first letter of my first name and then my last name. Um, should be easy to find. And otherwise, uh, I thank you very much for uh, for attending this uh, AMA.